Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie. Tuesday morning, morning the 26th of March. March. Good, Good morning, morning with, with much, much debate, debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Pressure is mounting on the board of the FAI as calls mount for answers to what appear to be inexplicable questions on top of the all pressure already on the association's former chief executive, John Delaney. Delaney, as you know, is being asked why he loaned to the FAI 100,000 Euro sought to injunct that story and then resigned only to take up a new position of executive vice president. Sinn Féin has said that this is a bizarre, I beg your pardon, a bizarre story that is becoming more bizarre by the day and that the FAI needs to explain itself. Its spokesperson on transport and sport is Imelda Munster who's on the line and a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us here this morning. Uh, What are the questions you have for John Delaney and for the board now. Well, one of the questions um, that I'll be asking is why? Why is it that he's no longer CEO? Is it because of the highly unusual bridging loan? Um, um, was this why the decision to move him was made so swiftly? Is it because of that? And if if the I uh, the FIA or the FAI sorry had deemed it not to be best practice, then why have they created another role for him? Mm. You know, if they feel that he had d- did something wrong and that was the move, that was the decision to move him aside and create a different role, why have they created that different role if, if there was, you know, nothing untoward about what he's done? And how, you know, how can they regard him as suitable for the new role? And another question would be if they, is the CEO get, going to get the same salary? And then if this new role is going to cost even more money that local clubs could be getting... You know, another mm. one would be why why was the loan not recorded? Why do you think the loan may have been untoward? Uh, I mean, well, surely it was a, a, a very generous thing for the chief executive to do to see the association through a financial crisis. So why was why was the decision taken so abruptly over the course of the weekend to to remove him from the position of CEO? That's the question. What was it because he resigned of the Well, yes, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, after the meeting at the weekend. But why, if if it if there was nothing wrong with the bridge and loan, why was the decision taken 
that he's no longer CEO and why did the board decide to move him and make another position for him? Hmm. Well, what so if, if what answer... he did in the first instance was not best practice, why have they decided to create another role for him? That's a very serious question. And the other question is, why did he feel the need to take, why was it not recorded, for example, firstly, in the accounts? And why was it never declared to Sport, Sport Ireland mm. if, if it was all above board, as, as they have said? And why did he feel the need to take court action in an effort to conceal it? Like, what was it about it that he didn't want it coming out into the public domain? Mm, well, and maybe. Have there been other loans of this nature between him and the FAI? Maybe it's because of uh, the fallout uh, from this. Uh, it's been particularly embarrassing for the association and uh, the idea that it needs uh, to borrow money to get from day to day uh, is an exceptionally embarrassing situation, is it not? Well, perhaps, but that asks questions too of why, what, about the, the funding and where the funding is going. But the very fact that he, you know, what was it about this loan that he felt he had to take court action to block it coming into the public domain. Mm. You know, what, that, that's a very serious question. In well, what, what do you think the answer to that is? Because the Sunday Times did report the story. Well, they did because it, it failed in the court action. But the question is more, if it was above board, as they have said, and it was to help out, you know, yeah. over a period until mm. they got the, the state fund. Cash flow. What, what was wrong? What, yes. Mm. What was wrong with... Um, just saying that publicly. Why go to the extremes of taking court action to conceal it? Well, possibly because of something as simple as reputation, image, perception, embarrassment. Uh, and all of these things are uh, important uh, in terms of drumming up team spirit and all that kind of thing, let alone national pride. Uh, but the story was published and it doesn't seem as though there was much untoward in the story, except it's peculiar. Well, it's it's more than peculiar, you know, for someone to take such drastic action to prevent it becoming public. It's more than peculiar. You know, if you're doing something right, you can stand over, stand over it. You know, the fact that it, he actually took that action to prevent it, um, you know, raises serious questions. But we have... Well, um, what are those questions? That's, that's what I don't understand. I mean, he... Well, firstly, why was, the associate... loan not rec- why was the loan not recorded in the accounts? Mm. Why was it not declared to Sport Ireland, mm. who funds them to the tune of 2.7 million a year? Um, why did he feel, you know, uh, were there other loans of this nature between himself and the FAI? There's a lot of questions around that that need to be answered. You know, mm. um, the money was paid back, wasn't it? The money was paid back. Yeah, it's my understanding that the money was paid back. I think um, the day, a day or day or two after they'd received the the state funding that it was paid back at that stage. Mm. But, um, you know, there's, there's questions in relation to not just John Delaney, but um, in relation to the board, in relation to the Code of Governance. Um, Sports Ireland have, have questions to answer, for example, um, what conditions or rules are in place to qualify for funding? You know, do, do they seek details of the funding spent annually? And if they don't, then why not? Hmm. And if they do, then we need to know exactly what the, the funding is spent on. Is it spent on salaries and expenses? Or do they insist it goes to grassroots strategy to build up the clubs locally, the teams and the players? You know, does, the, does John Delaney approve his own salary and conditions? 
the maximum term for the board members? That's another question that needs to be answered. I mean, the looking over stuff at the weekend, the recommendations from there was a report published in 2002, a Genesis report, and it was commissioned by the FAI, and they had recommended reforms at that time. And a couple of the recommendations were, one was for two independent non-executive directors be appointed to the board, and that never happened. And the other was term limits for board members. But um, we have at the minute, uh, there's an 11-member strong board, and seven of those have served over 11 years Two have served over 15 years, and John Delaney himself has been on the board for 17 years, 14 of those as CEO. And that's going against all um, good governance recommendations. I mean, the the minister had announced in 2017 that it, it would be mandatory by this year for sporting bodies in receipt of state funds to comply with the corporate governance code. You know, and that's that's a maximum term of three terms of three years. Mm. A lot of this is very hard to understand, to mm. uh, try but and make any sense of it, and there's no doubt uh, about that. It's a riddle, isn't it? It is a riddle, and the, the unfortunate thing is um, it's a kick in the teeth for the fans, and you can mm. hear the frustration you know, of um, fans that are committed to fo- football at lo- local level, and you know, it's bringing the rep- mm. reputation of the FAI into disrepute. And as know. we heard, a kick in the teeth for employees who were taking pay cuts at a, a time when uh, the FAI was paying a, a year's salary plus in terms that's of what right, they yeah. were earning for John Delaney's rent. That's right. Yeah, that's another um, serious question. You know, I mean, it's, it, it would have amounted to 36000 over the year despite the fact that he's in receipt of a salary of over €360,000 per annum, you know, and workers had been told that they'd take the pay cut, you know, at the same time as this was going on. But um, I think, you know, among the questions, the serious questions is the governance over the FAI and the fact that, you know, they're not not adhering to basic um, corporate governance code guidelines, you know, whilst in receipt of state money. Okay. And you, can, you can hear, as I said, the frustration of the fans. I mean, was it last, yeah, it was last night mm-hmm. um, on the news, Niall Quinn had said that uh, he would rule himself out, you know, be, it would be impossible for, for him to take up the task of new CEO because of the fact that, uh, you know, he'd, he'd have a huge shadow hanging over him, the fact that, um John Delaney would still be there. Is there a question over who's going to question him at uh, this Oireachtas committee uh, and the relationship between the Oireachtas members and Mr Delaney, other members of the FAI? The Sun is reporting uh, today that John Delaney secured uh, tickets for the World Cup final for one of the Oireachtas members, Kevin O'Keefe. I just heard that about 10 minutes ago, I'd say, yeah, yeah, and I don't know enough about it. It's just somebody had said it to me in passing in here, you know. Um, but certainly the Oireachtas Committee will be very proactive in that we have to get answers to these questions. You know, we have to get answers. It, it's, as I said, the, the entire reputation of the FAI has been put into disrepute, you know, and it's important, particularly when, it, when um, an agency or an organisation is receipt, in mm. receipt of state funding. These questions have to be answered. And what surprised me most was that I've heard very little, and I mean very little in the way of support, Mm. from any grassroots 
you oh, know, I think there's been I, th- I think there's been a, a lot of support for John Delaney. Uh, uh, it works both ways, I think, in that respect. Have you anything to say to Kevin O'Keefe, or would you like Kevin O'Keefe to say anything following this story in the Sun? Well, he, as I said, I haven't seen it, but he'd certainly need to explain explain himself. Most certainly, you know that um, if you're going to be questioning people, then you have to be, you know, above. Well, it's straightforward. John Delaney sourced uh, the tickets. He, he paid uh, the full eighteen hundred euro for the tickets. Two passes that were sourced by Delaney. Gosh, yeah, yeah. So he did that in his position as as a, a TD. I mean, that that should should not happen. You know, it just should not happen. As I said, I'll, I'll look into it some more. I don't know enough, so I don't want to comment on it any further. But that, I mean, particularly if he's going to, if they're coming into the Oireachtas Committee, which. They are, and uh, hopefully we can get them in at the earliest possible date. Um, I mean, you're leaving yourself open, aren't you? You know, with virtue of the fact that you've been in contacting him to secure tickets, if that was the case, you okay. know. That All right, let's uh, talk a, about a, a local issue for a moment, uh, if we can, and move on from the FAI. Uh, undoubtedly, that story will run and run. Uh, but have you any uh, idea as to why somebody threw a bomb at a house in Rathmullen, Rathmullen in Drogheda yesterday? No, what what I have heard it happened, it was left at the doorstep yesterday morning and um, speaking to the guardie, it was deemed to be a, a viable device, you know, and it would have caused serious harm had it had it gone off. And it's my understanding the windows had been um, smashed in that same property mm. last week. That's my understanding of it, you know. Um, and I think there were other incidents... Um, it, you know this this uh, drug related feud thing. I'm not saying this is directly related to the feud, but it appears to be related to you know the the drug debt, if you like that sort of connection there. Um, that that's that's happened in several homes over the last couple of months. You know that intimidation and threats of attack is still are still ongoing, and it's very worrying. You know. Um, Half eleven in the morning. Uh, there were a number yeah. of people in the house. Broad at the daylight. Time. Yeah, 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 yeah. And to think that it was a viable d- device as well. Had it gone off, you know. But as I said, there was obviously um, previous threats. The fact that the windows had been smashed last week. But it's ongoing. There was another case there. Um, I was dealing with uh, about a good few weeks ago, should we say? But um, again, similar. I mean, really, really serious, frightening threats to a family. I mean, I'm not, I couldn't, I wouldn't actually put them, it would be too alarming to put them live on air, but it, they were very, very, very serious um, threats made. And, you know, it just proves that it's, it's ongoing. And again, it seemed to, seems to be younger people that are going around, you know, doing the, the work of others, mm. making threats on homes and families. Um, and then, you know, the painting or graffiti sprayed on walls in the States. Horrible, ugly, disgusting. How, how serious um, are you talking about murder threats? Well, look, I, I just don't want to... Well, I mean, a threat so serious that, yeah, you would fear for your life. Yes, put it that way. I mean, this, you know, and a very, very real threat, you know. Mm. Um, but it's, it's, it's ongoing all the time. And, you know, your worry is now that they seem to be kind of um, upping the ante again, you know, and all the more reason that um, now I know they they 
the Guardi are following up on that incident yesterday, but all the more important that the Guardi keep right on top of this all of the time. Yeah, they have a lot on their hands, don't they? Uh, of course three, they do, yeah. Three yeah. handguns, ammunition and drugs found at a, a former pub at the Parkview Soccer Ground last week and a grow house uh, discovered in uh, Drumiskin yesterday. That's right. And then the, the um, apparent shooting, uh, yes, last night, you know, the, uh, a youth or a youth presented at Our Lady of Lords late last night um, with uh, a gunshot to the knee. You know, now I don't think the, the injury is, is serious, but serious as in, you know, medically serious, but uh, serious nonetheless, you know, and um, they're having difficulty getting information about that. People are scared to talk, and that's the important thing, that people shouldn't be afraid, you know, because every every bit of information in relation to this ongoing feud is crucial. And have you been hearing anything about what the motivation for that shooting might have been? No, no, no. They don't seem to know. Uh, it's my understanding that the individual won't talk. They don't know where it happened, how it happened, why it happened, Was when it, it happened. Was it a or an attempted kneecapping? Well, it it has the hallmarks of that, but you don't, you know, I, I don't know fully now. But that that's, I mean, there's, there, it appears that they're not forthcoming with the information as to where it even happened, why it happened, how it happened, who did it. Mm. And we spoke about this last week. There seems to be a reluctance on the part of Gardaí to communicate with the public. Well, in what sense do you mean? Sorry. Yeah, in the sense uh, that crimes are taking place uh, and appeals for information are, are not being issued, you're suggesting uh, that uh, there's little information on this shooting being made public now. Well, no, no I think um, the information is that the 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 Gardaí are finding a difficulty a difficulty in getting information in relation to the the um, the shooting last mm. night the, from the person that was. Present, had presented at the this hospital. young man, the 19-year-old yes, involved, yes, yes. is too reluctant yes. to tell them, in other words. Yes, mm-hmm. it appears that that's, that's the case, you know. Okay. But both the public um, and people that feel, that have received threats or feel under threat or anybody at all that has information and likewise, um, you know, the Guardian need to, to highlight these incidents more and, you know, act as soon as they get in the relevant information. Okay. We'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Sinn Féin spokesperson on transport and sport, uh, Louth TD, Imelda Munster. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Minister for European Affairs, Fine Gael TD for me, the East, Helen McEntee, has uh, come in to us uh, this morning. Thank you very much for doing so. You're a very busy person and it's a, a very busy time for a bu- very busy person, it has to be said, with uh, the ongoing crises uh, relating uh, to Brexit, uh, which were compounded yesterday, I think, uh, to a large degree. And we'll talk about all of that. But uh, out of your busy time, you've managed to find time to deal with another issue and uh, just to acknowledge that publicly and to thank you for the help that you've given to me personally uh, in the dealings I've had with via GoGo. People listening to the programme regularly will know that I claimed I was sold invalid tickets. The company disputed that and refused to give me a refund. You intervened. You wrote to via GoGo. Uh, you followed that up with a, a telephone call and as a result via GoGo said that they would refund and have subsequently refunded that money to me. Uh, but it is an issue that 
that is of interest to you uh, and it is an issue that you intend to raise further, I understand. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it shouldn't be a case that when somebody, as you have um, purchased something in good faith and and I've, you know, I've gone on the website, I've looked at what they uh, say that they do and and that everything is 100% safe and secure and um, that it is guaranteed the fact that that wasn't the case um, that you clearly wrote to them numerous times and obviously going through all of the correspondence mm-hmm. that you had with them and the fact that they still refuse to do it only until I made contact that's, that's not acceptable it's not okay that they would only do it because I'm a TD or a minister and, and, and that is why they responded and, and refunded your money essentially so uh, it's something that I've already written to the minister with responsibility for I've written to the company raised questions in terms of what uh, rules and regulations they work under uh, whether the minister thinks it's strong enough and, and obviously I've highlighted that it's clearly not um, because you yourself have said that other people have been in contact with you mm-hmm. so maybe if it, just to say because obviously if people have been in contact with you the new G- GDPR or the, the um, data protection rules means you would have to get back to them to yep. get their consent but if anybody wants to get in contact with my office directly that way then we can follow up with them and, and if they have had difficulties in the same way but it shouldn't be happening uh, it shouldn't take a TD a minister anybody else to get involved for them to come back and give you your money back so we'll be following it through with the company but also the minister and, and maybe I can update you whenever we get a response back. Absolutely and we look forward to that and thank you uh, again for your intervention in that uh, and uh, it is a, an issue uh, that uh, would have would be of concern to many people who've ha- had experiences and uh, indeed if people listening have had a negative experience and would like to make contact with yourself or Minister Humphreys uh, they can do that directly with you or through the radio station and uh, thank you again for that let's uh, talk uh, about Brexit now if we can Uh, do you believe that it should go to a second referendum now Uh, the former Deputy Prime Minister Michael Heseltine told the BBC this morning that it is his belief uh, that a referendum should be put to the people a second time and that it's time for Theresa May to resign well, as I always have, Michael, um, I, I, I want to refrain maybe from interfering in, I suppose, what I see as their own political agenda and what it is that they feel they should do. But I think what we're getting closer towards now are possible other options that haven't been on the table up until now. For those who maybe didn't see it last night, because it was happening mm. quite late after 10 o'clock, there were a series of votes, um, two of which the government lost. Essentially, the first one saying that the Prime Minister or, or essentially the House of Commons would now be able to have a series of votes which they could then possibly agree on other ways Mm. forward. And what we've already heard is you could have an agreement on a customs union type relationship in terms of a future relationship between the UK and the EU. You could have a call for a second referendum. You could have a call for a vote on the Prime Minister's current deal, Mm. whether or not you would revoke Article 50 or many other options. The thing Um, here, I suppose, is that MPs have been accused of saying what they don't want. Now they're being asked to say what they do want or to indicate which measures they would support through this series of indicative votes Uh, and it's being described as the House taking control but I'm not sure that's the case. Are you, Minister, given the response of Theresa May because uh, she's saying uh, that she will not necessarily follow the will of the House of Commons? And I suppose this is the problem, as you've said. We've consistently said nearly three years on, we still don't know what they want. We've had a series of votes previously which have actually contradicted each other where they've been asked, or Theresa May has been asked to go back and change the withdrawal agreement even though 
the UK or the EU have said that they won't. At the same time, there's been votes to say that they don't want to deal or, or a no-deal scenario. Um, the Prime Minister yesterday, when she was answering Prime Minister's questions, was asked if there is a series of indicative votes, which we will now have. The government also, the, the, the House of Commons won a vote last night to say that mm. they could set the timeline. It would be this week. If we pass a series of votes, whether it's a customs union, a new referendum or anything else, would you then implement that? And the Prime Minister didn't give a commitment to do that. She, I, I think the way she said it was that the government might not be able to implement it. Mm. Now, whether she meant we don't want to or we won't or it mightn't be within our gift to, but it just shows you how difficult the situation is this week. So while we well, might have a series might of votes... consider the most favoured option uh, to be impracticable or they might say that there's two options uh, which are incompatible. Uh, and this was the argument that was being put forward by the British government this morning. Absolutely. And I think that's why we need to see what proposals are put forward this week. If you have a series of votes that are contradictory, then we find ourselves in the same place that we found ourselves a number of weeks ago. And this is what is extremely frustrating for me, for everybody here in Ireland, but also for the rest of the EU. And I think for many people in the UK as well, because what people are saying is try and come to an agreed position, try and come to a consensus, Mm. either put it back to the people or else ensure that you deliver a, a a deal that essentially has as little impact on people's lives and on their business and their livelihoods. And we saw last week, uh, essentially, the business sector in the UK come out and the representative bodies and say, sort it out. This is going to cost not just millions, hundreds of billions of euros to the economy. And if mm. we don't have a deal, we've seen then last night the URSRI here in Ireland with finance have issued a further report that essentially was based on one which was uh, preliminary preliminary uh, produced in January, but also they've been doing work since before um, the referendum even took place. And it's quite similar to a report to Copenhagen Economics, which was done almost two years ago. And it essentially, from an Irish point of view, sets out the fact that in a deal scenario, we're talking about one point uh, or 2.6 percent less growth than had initially been projected over the next few years. But in a no deal or a, or a disorderly no deal, um, if, if you could think there's something worse than a no mm. deal, there's a disorderly no deal. Uh, it's about 5 percent less. And the impact that that will have on whether it's uh, the agricultural sector. I'm going this morning now to Kells for the launch of A Place on a Place and the Mead Food Series or the Boyne Valley Food Series. And that is an industry that is focused on food, that is focused on tourism, and they are two of the sectors most likely to be hit. So we're under no illusion that this is not going to be good. But if you look at our figures, the figures for the UK are equally as bad. So this is why we really need to see members of parliament coming together Mm. this weekend, looking at those figures, looking at what people are saying in their own constituencies, but across the wider business sector, taking that on board and trying to come to a consensus because if nobody is talking to each other and they are essentially just voting on things that contradict each other, then we're moving closer and closer to an To that doomsday scenario, which is painted out quite clearly for us uh, this morning by the ESRI. Mm. Exactly. And, And I mean, it doesn't just impact on our growth, it's impacting on our labour figures. So... Obviously, our unemployment rate is probably the lowest it's been in over 10 years. It's about 5.8% at the moment, and it's still steadily decreasing. However, if you were to have a no deal, what you're talking about is not just a a sudden impact and things recovering and and going back to the way they were. You're talking about a complete shift in the actual structure of our economy, which Mm. means suddenly a gradual increase again in unemployment. Now, not to the height or not to a recession point that we've seen in the past but certainly an increase and and, you know that's obviously something that we've been working hugely to try and avoid and we've been putting a huge amount of work into making sure that a lot of the jobs that are created in the last Mm. number of years have been outside of Dublin have been in the rural areas which hopefully 
if if we find ourselves in a bad position will stand to us because three out of five jobs created mm-hmm. in rural areas at the same time the most impacted will be agriculture small and medium enterprises mm-hmm. tourism all of which takes Minister, part in rural areas Minister you'd have met Theresa May privately last week uh, along with the Taoiseach uh, and not for the first time when you meet with the British Prime Minister uh, what advice do you give to her? Do you suggest her taking a a different approach? Well I mean I suppose the meeting last week initially was for the Prime Minister to outline her letter she had sought a request for an extension to the 30th of June now we know now the terms were obviously slightly different but an extension was given she outlined her reason for doing that but really what we did and what the Taoiseach in particular did was outline the fact that we don't want a no deal, that mm. they are the ones that have the ability and the capability to take a no deal off the table. Uh, we raised the fact that we were concerned that the withdrawal agreement would not pass for a third time and what would that mean? Uh, I suppose she is has it, always been somewhat so confident form- that she can it, get it passed. Are, are these meetings so formal though that you don't confide in each other? Well, I mean... This meeting in particular was probably more informal than most because Mm. it was just before the council sat down with the Prime Minister um, and we didn't have as much time as we usually would so it was in more of an informal setting, a general chat. um, But I mean... I suppose we, we, we only get so much as we get and, and the mm. Prime Minister only gives as much as she wants to give. I think we are as honest as we can be in those discussions in saying what this means to us, what the possible likelihood is. We have always said we wanted to work with the UK through the EU in that if they asked for an extension mm. we would do our best to make sure that it was looked upon favourably but that's not without any cost. There would have to mm. be a reason for it. There would have to be a timeline because even from an Irish point of view moving aimlessly towards a newer date without an actual objective just prolongs the difficulty for people and the uncertainty Mm. and it makes it even much more difficult for them. So all of this, this, these are the kind of things that we relate to the Prime Minister, hope that she takes on board. Mm. Obviously, you know, she's looking at her own When the Taoiseach says he he believes there'll be a a deal, is there something we don't know? Because on the face of it, it seems impossible as things stand to reach a, a deal. I think the Prime Minister, the, the, well, the Prime Minister and the Taoiseach and myself and others are basing that on the fact that there is a majority in the House of Commons that doesn't want a no deal scenario. Mm. And I think now, you know, we, we really will see this week because if they aren't able to come to some sort of an agreement or if they start voting on uh, amendments that mm. contradict each other, then we have a much, then, then yeah. I'm afraid my, my well, opinion on that might change. But I do still think... We still have the option to revoke it. We have the option of a, a general election. We have the option of a, a second vote. We've the option, I suppose, of a, a leadership contest and the time that that might uh, afford to come up with different options. Uh, but it doesn't seem as though the only deal that is possible for MPs to agree on is agreeable. No, and, but what we haven't seen before is we haven't actually seen Parliament take control. And I, I understand that the Prime Minister yesterday did say, well, we'll yeah. see what comes out of it and if we can or not. But this is the first time that the Parliament has actually said we are now taking over, we are setting the agenda and the timeline of when these votes will happen and we are going to say what it is that we want you to do. Mm. We haven't really seen that yet and I think we need to see how that goes but obviously what the the House of Commons have asked for and what the Commission have been clear in saying is if you can set out a reason why a longer term extension might be needed i.e. a change to the future political declaration which we've always said we can amend and change possibly an election obviously that that Mm. would require time because their elections are much longer than ours in the time scale that they have to have Uh, you know whether or not you would have a change in Prime Minister I I don't know there's obviously talk of that as well Um, but any of these would require additional time 
and now even to talk about the European elections, what that means for us. We have already put legislation in place through the Omnibus Bill, which was signed by the President, which would allow for that. But there are other countries that are saying they actually cannot. So while we're saying, well, we can have two seats possibly there, I don't think it's very fair for the people who would campaign and possibly Mm. be elected. Mm. Other countries are saying we legally actually can't do that. So we do have a difficulty in terms of if there is a longer term extension, which could mean possibly a closer relationship which we want, it's not necessarily the easiest thing to do at the same time. And the possibility of a Brexit on the 22nd of May and the elections on the 24th. And how that would feed into a Mm. lot of the discussions. And, Mm. you know, I'm I'm so positive about Europe. I think it's done so much for this country. But if we suddenly have this happening at the same time and a no deal, the the, the implications that that might have and the conversations that are being had as well, Mm. in a very negative way, I don't think it would be helpful. But we we need to see how things go. And I think this week will will be a teller, certainly. Minister, thank you very much indeed for coming in to us uh, this morning. Uh, That's uh, the Minister for European Affairs, Fine Gael TD in Meath East, Helen McEntee. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's take up on that last point. Could you imagine if Brexit was on the 22nd of May and the European elections on the 24th of May? As Minister McEntee said, how would that feed into the talk about Europe as people were hoping to be elected? Well, will Brexit happen on the 22nd of May? Yes. No. Uh, Maybe. Um, I don't know. God knows. That's confusing as ever, isn't it? Uh, What we do know is uh, that the European elections will take place on the 24th of May. Let's uh, talk about this and what else will be happening with Eileen Brophy, our political editor, because it's not just the European elections that will be held on the 24th of May, Eileen. No, no, we have uh, obviously the local elections, there's 31 local authorities. So uh, uh, would you believe it, 949 local councillors will be elected uh, that day. So um, you can imagine uh, the, the amount of, uh, of councillors that are going to run for it all around the country. Uh, that will be knocking on your doors uh, for the next uh, eight weeks. So after that, then, we have the plebiscite. Um, but that's only in Limerick, Cork and Waterford. But they're pilot schemes. So what they're going to do is they're going to have the, the, the pilot scheme election in those three cities. And then in Dublin, they're going to have a citizens' assembly to decide whether we need a, 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 you know, a direct elected mayor. Mm. And then obviously in uh, other areas, if it works in Limerick, Cork and Waterford, then uh, we'll see it throughout the whole country. But the problem is at this stage that um, uh, the Attorney General isn't happy um, about all of this. And I believe that Richard Bruton isn't happy about all of this as well. Uh, they see a whole lot of problems because what is the, the, the uh, directed, the, the, uh, the, the mayor, the, the Lord Mayor, or the mayor going to do? Mm. You're going, uh, I know that the whole idea when the, it was uh, mooted by the Greens some years ago that we would still have the Lord Mayor of Dublin, you know, going to schools and doing all that kind of stuff. But then you'd have a mayor who would take over and would be over the CEO, would be over planning, would be over everything. Now, I think that, you know, that could be quite frightening. And obviously that is how some senior people within the cabinet feel as well, because Mm. you're going to transfer powers um, for planning from experts 
um, to uh, elected people. Now, you know and I know that if, you know, if people aren't happy uh, about what's going on in their back garden uh, or backyard, that people in, in like civil servants don't care. You know, because you're not going to elect them. So they go with whatever, you know, they think the height should be, whether there should be um, planning for single houses out around the country or whether they should be all in one area where, you know, you have services or, you know, all of that sort of stuff. And it doesn't really bother them that, you know, they're, yeah. they're, they're doing it for the good of the country, they believe, uh, and it doesn't bother them. But an elected person will, you know, will be, uh, be, be working for everybody. And so, hoping to get re-elected. And hoping to get re-elected. Yep. So, like, there's a whole load mm. of problems now. And making decisions where there are votes, I yeah. suppose, is the argument. So there's yeah. loads mm-hmm. and loads of problems mm-hmm. uh, for this all in, now at this stage, which have really only come to light now. Uh, and that executive role would be justified by executive pay? Uh, absolutely. I mean, they're going to get 130000 which is not as much as the FAI pay, but still <laughs> 130000 is uh, not to be sneezed at either. So you're going to have another, in, in all of these councils, you're going to have another huge um, salary. Uh, and obviously, you, uh, when you have a huge salary like that, that comes at expenses. Uh, can the country, can the mm. local authority in question um, afford that kind of thing as well? And a referendum as well on the 24th. Yeah, now this referendum, I suppose it's like everything else in this country, you know, when to try and take anything out of the, the Constitution. Uh, you know, we voted on divorce and it didn't get through. Um, and then we voted on, vote on divorce again and it did get through. But with that people had to be living apart for four of of, uh, five consecutive years for four of those years Uh, now what happens is an awful lot of people are still living in their own homes um, and they're living apart in their homes because people can't afford to move out Um, so it's still part of the constitution which is ridiculous that this should be done really by by the the Oireachtas and it should be by legislation uh, not in the constitution. So uh, this is, you know, what I, I, what the government feel at this stage. But particularly, it really is Josepha Madigan's mm. uh, minister, Josepha Madigan's uh, thing. Uh, she's been talking about this for some time, and like it does make a lot of sense. Like if people don't get on, we don't know what kind of marriages people are living in. There's domestic violence. There's, you know, there's mental torture. There's all sorts of things. But the one thing that I suppose there's going to be for and against it. Uh, people are going to find some ways of of of, uh, of wanting to leave it in the constitution, but I suppose the thing for most people will be that the you know the the, the other thing that proper provision mm-hmm. for spouses and children will still be part of the constitution. They also have in it that you know there will be no prospect of reconciliation with staying in the constitution. I don't know how anybody can say whether or not you, there is no prospect of reconciliation because under circumstances when you're you know, picking up kids and meeting kids mm-hmm. and communions and confirmations and uh, marriages and all sorts of things, people start meeting together, uh, they're older uh, and, and people do get back together. Mm. Uh, so how you can say there's no prospect of reconciliation is ridiculous. But anyway, it is going to stay in the Constitution and only uh, the four-year rule uh, will be taken out of it. OK, and people will be voting in all of those uh, particular polls yeah. on the 24th. It'll be a on very 24th, busy day. And then we have, obviously, I, I, I think mm-hmm. it'll be the 26th, 
before we will actually, uh, even though they will count uh, as they always do uh, the, for uh, for your, the European elections, but I don't think that would be announced until it's done all over the the Europe Europe uh, in the twenty sixth. Okay, Eileen, thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Michael. Thank Michael. you. That's our political editor, Eileen Brophy. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Maggie McGuire joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have been coming to us uh, this morning. Good morning to you, Maggie. Morning, Michael. How you doing? I'm good. Busy on the phones today? It has. It's been really busy, actually. And John Delaney is the uh, key talking point for a lot of people um, following your interview with Imelda at the start of the programme. Uh, so I'll kick off with that anyway. Um, Mary says that much has been made of Delaney's being moved aside and been given a reduced salary. But she says it's hardly a reduced wage when it's still a six-figure salary. Um, the money he was on at, from the outset was uh, outrageous in the extreme and to think that he was having his rent paid as well beggars belief mm. she said he seems to have been a law unto himself all these years and he should be sacked immediately <laughs> OK well I'm sure Mr Delaney would think otherwise uh, he has resigned obviously as chief executive uh, maybe that's uh, what I mean uh, he's assuming this uh, new role as uh, executive vice president and I'm sure a lot of people would wish him luck in that well I would like to say that Mary was a lone voice but she's not I'm afraid so I'm going to have to keep going in that vein. Um, John was asked, saying, what's the point in giving him a new role within the same organisation? He said that if his behaviour was deemed not to be acceptable for the chief ex- or if he was deemed not to be exe- acceptable for the role of chief executive anymore, then how is he suitable for the role of well, sure executive vice president yeah, of the I same organisation? Yeah, I mean, he did resign his role, didn't he? He did resign his role, mm. but I mean, I suppose a lot of people are wondering, did he resign before he was made to resign? Mm. Yeah, well, as far as we know, he resigned his that's role, it, yes. That's, yeah. it, that's mm-hmm. what we were told. Mm-hmm. Um, on the same topic, Tommy was saying that uh, Delaney should have gone immediately, no questions asked. What's the benefit in just moving him around? It's typical in this country that this is how this mess has been handled. We never follow the right course of action. We just bury our heads in the sand and hope the scandal will die down. Mm. Yeah. I'm not sure what the scandal is. It's a riddle, but I'm not sure what the scandal is. Well, I think for a lot of people, the scandal is his salary. I mean, it's mm. 360,000. Well, yeah, but his, uh, his salary was uh, no different a week ago. I know, but I suppose people probably didn't realise how much it was. I mean, you mm. take into account that it's nearly four times the amount of the prize money for mm. the team who actually win the league. It does seem a little bit of a, yep. you know, a juxtaposition in that sense, you know. Well, I mean, it's hard to understand. I'd say Donald Trump is envious of his salary, as I said the other day in the programme, uh, but it's no different than the salary it was a week ago. That's true. That's true. So we know about it now. Things are always worse mm, when you know about it. Your ignorance so. is bliss, isn't that what they say? <laughs> yeah. um, John Delaney mm. is only part of the problem at the FAI, according to Tom Dundalk. He said the whole board needs to go and a new one be put in place. And that actually kind of echoes what um, a former mm. uh, chief executive of the organisation was saying yesterday. He thinks it should be like a six-year ro- six basis and then after that everything mm. gets changed up. So that seems to be what Tom is saying as well. Yeah. And he's saying how could they have sanctioned a new role for Delaney, one that didn't previously exist, where is the money going to come from for to pay him for that um, and then Tony and Navin was in contact he said he's um, from a club in the North East League and while people criticised John Delaney he was more than helpful to us when we looked for assistance a few years ago for upgrading our club facilities mm. OK the FBI are far from perfect but what sport organisation is Yeah well I think there are a lot of uh, people who would have a, a lot of positive things to say about John Delaney Absolutely mm. there's always mm. two sides to any mm. story isn't there really um, and then more in Balbriggan was saying the stories we're hearing about uh, John Delaney and the ongoings or at the or the goings on even at the FAI just about sum up this country. How many more similar stories have you heard in the past and are probably going to hear in the future? A clear lack of accountability in too many major organisations.
Mm, interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about Brexit again, if we can. Uh, we were discussing uh, where they're going next with Minister Helen McEntee. I did mention in uh, the course of uh, that conversation how uh, the former Deputy Prime Minister Michael Heseltine was speaking about it this morning. Uh, and he feels uh, that there's only one option for the United Kingdom at this stage. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. No, I, I think her premiership has been hanging by the flimsiest thread now for some weeks. So she should go? I think my anxiety about her going is actually a simple one, and that is there's not much point in changing the singer if you don't change the song. Hmm. Well, we can always write another tune, can't we? We've been doing that for the last two and a half years, sort of. Uh, well, well, uh, yes, I, I want someone with passion who will put the national interest. I hugely admire members of parliament who risk their careers in the, because they believe that the national interest overrides the party loyalties. But you think if, if, if you were prime minister or if, if you could put yourself in her position and maybe cut her a bit of slack, say she has tried very hard over the last two and a half years, um, w- w- wouldn't you sort of say maybe sh- we should cut her a wee bit more slack at this stage? No, this is not a question of bacon slicing. Uh, this is a national crisis about the sort of country we are, the sort of people we are. What I would do, which uh, it's a luxury for me to pretend I have any powers to do anything, but what I would do would be to go back to Europe and say, look, the heart of this matter is the exploitation of the fear of immigration. We have got to solve the European immigration issue, and we as Britain want to play a full part in doing that. And The one underlying question which Theresa May can't escape is having gone on and on about the advantage of controlling our borders in um, uh, the aftermath of Brexit. How is it she allowed the the record numbers of non-European immigrants to come across our borders? She did nothing, which shows that she knows just how damaging tight control will be to our health service and to our industry. So in a word, she's got to go. 
Well, she will go. I mean, there's no doubt yeah, she's yeah, got but I mean, sooner rather no than later. Uh, well, it, it, this is the dilemma. No one can agree about who to put in her place or what to say as a policy. And so just creating that other vacuum doesn't actually solve the problem. All right, uh, that's Michael Heseltine actually talking about why he believes... Theresa May has to resign as Prime Minister. In fact, as you said there, why she will resign as Prime Minister, leaving the United Kingdom with just one route available to it. There's no doubt at all that public opinion is moving uh, quite significantly now, appalled at what has happened and the events that they see and apprehensive of the fact that we haven't even begun to negotiate the real deal, which, in my view, will threaten all sorts of things we treasure, like the safety of people, the security of the country, all the things that are enshrined in European regulation that the hard right want to tear down. So, in my view, the House of Commons will seek some sort of compromise. Uh, the government won't like it. The ultimate test, I think, is to go back to the people with what the House of Commons has determined and an option to remain. To remain. Uh, I'm sure those words will be heard by many members of uh, the Conservative Party this morning, loud and clear. That's Michael Heseltine speaking uh, to the Radio 4 programme today with Nick Robinson a little bit earlier on this morning. Now let's go back uh, to some more of your thoughts and comments. Uh, Maggie, you have uh, more opinions for us there. I do. I do have uh, more opinions for me. Actually, I actually have a couple on Brexit as well this morning. Um, Mary contacted us in relation to um, what happened in the UK overnight and she's saying, so May has lost another vote in Westminster and now has essentially lost control of the whole, pro- whole process. How many times does she have to fall flat on her face politically before she's ousted and somebody else is given a chance to try and manage this mess? Well... Not too many more, it would seem, listening to that last uh, interview. Yeah, it would appear that way, all right. And uh, staying with that, actually, um, I'll give the final word to Anne for the moment. And she is saying as well that Theresa May needs to go. She's making a pig's ear out of the whole process and can't get Parliament to come together on anything apart from the fact that they've now all come together to vote to take the control out of her hands. Mm. She needs to hold her hands up and admit defeat and head off into the sunset like Cameron Farage and Johnson before her. (laughs) Right, well, we'll uh, watch that space. It's going to be a a long uh, week, I think, uh, all told. Uh, But thanks uh, for that and thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's been said, Maggie and Ross are taking calls uh, this morning and our telephone number is 1850-715-958. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Shannon will debate legislation which would counter false self-employment. We'll discuss this uh, with Labour Party Senator Gerald Nash, who's bringing uh, this bill before the House uh, tomorrow. He's with us in studio this morning. Before we talk about uh, the legislation, perhaps uh, we can turn our attention again to some of uh, the local matters over the course of uh, the last 24 hours. Uh, A bomb around the corner and a young man in hospital with what appears to have been an attempt to kneecap him, shooting him in the knee. That's right. Um, This issue hasn't gone away. Uh, Unfortunately, I'm in here too often, Michael, um, talking to you about um, the state of fear that Drogheda has been gripped by over the last few months in particular. Um, We've had, as you say, a um, pipe bomb attack just a few hundred metres actually from the studio as the crow flies uh, yesterday. 
we have had a uh, gun attack, uh, it seems, yesterday, even last night, where a man presented to the emergency department of the Lord's Hospital with gunshot wounds to his leg in an apparent attempt at kneecapping. Uh, and uh, in recent days on the north side of Drotto, we had a consignment of um, arms found uh, in a well-known uh, location close to the centre of Drada. Three um, handguns and ammunition. Handguns yeah. and ammunition. Yeah, and some drugs, uh, apparently. Some drugs, yeah. uh, as I understand yeah, it as yeah, well. Yeah. Um, so this isn't going away, um, and certainly not off my agenda. Uh, we have had um, uh, the deployment of four additional members of Garda Sheikana in recent days to Drada. Four is not enough. Um, you know, I've been on this programme time and again, yeah. calling the Minister for Justice out and the Garda Commissioner on the lack of support for... Um, the people of Drada in terms of the security situation. We don't have enough guards in Drada to police a normal um, scenario, let alone um, police a criminal feud. Um, it's scary times in the town. And while people say, well, there are a very small handful of people involved in this, my fear is that an innocent person is going to get dragged into this uh, and be mm. shot, maimed uh, or worse. Mm. Well, if a bomb goes off next door to you, uh, you're in danger. Uh, if somebody's firing gunshots in a retail park you're in danger whether you're involved in uh, the activities of these gangs or the feud between them that's right um, and you know, as the guards themselves say I mean this feud will end um, it will end quicker of course if we have uh, more resources to deal uh, with the situation but uh, I, I've said it time and again I've been saying this since last summer um, you know there are various protagonists who are involved in this and it is a bloody uh, feud. It is a dangerous feud. But my concern is for the ordinary, decent citizens of Drada. And if somebody gets caught up in this, mm. um, somebody innocent, um, a child riding a bike, uh, somebody um, wheeling a pram down the street, mm. um, then we'll be reflecting on all of these conversations we've had in the studio over mm. the last few months and the lack of action um, by, by some. Kneecapping is a, a pretty sinister development, isn't it? Uh, I mean, uh, it's unusual outside of uh, paramilitaries in Northern Ireland uh, to hear of kneecapping uh, yeah. and uh, quite often it's or at least we dissociated with a punishment of sorts I don't know if that's the case in what happened in Drogheda last night uh, but that would be the concern Yeah it's a new and it's a very sinister um, twist and this is taken uh, straight out of the um, uh, mafia. armory of the yeah. mafia mm-hmm. or the IRA yeah. P- Policing uh, drug deaths Loyalists yeah. terrorists mm-hmm. Loyalists mm-hmm. paramilitaries mm-hmm. You pay your um, debts or you're punished. Absolutely, and this is mm. this is a sinister new turn. Uh, if this the way, if this is the way it's going, um, you know we know. And Councillor Peel Smith has been on with you on many many occasions talking about the the, the issues in this town in relation to the victim victimisation of families uh, arising from alleged drug debt. Um, the threat previously was, well, look, you know, we will um, attack your house, mm. um, we will, um, you know, attack your relations and so on. But now it seems that um, it's taken a turn, a more sinister turn, where those who are um, possibly, and I'm not saying that the individual who was mm. caught up with this mm. last night mm. uh, is suspected of owing a drug debt. Um, but certainly, uh, if this is the way things are turning, uh, this is very, very sinister, where people who are alleged to owe money to drug dealers and criminal uh, gangland criminals uh, that they're you know, threatened with um, essentially a lifelong mm. disability, then that has a really um, 
serious impact, I think, in our consideration of all these issues uh, and something that the guards and I will take very seriously. We, we all should take very seriously. All right, I'm sure we'll be hearing more about that later in the programme uh, this morning. Let's talk uh, about uh, this uh, employment legislation that uh, you're bringing forward. Uh, it's uh, to be uh, debated at uh, Shannon level tomorrow. Uh, and perhaps uh, you'd explain to us, first of all, what false self-employment is. Well, false self-employment, if there's anyone particularly working in the construction or transport industry who's listened to the programme today, they will be familiar with the term bogus, false or or disguised self-employment. It's essentially where um, a a bad employer will turn around to somebody who's uh, engaged in a job and say, I want you to register as self-employed so I don't have to pay a stamp for you, I don't have to pay PRSI. Uh, And arising from that, um, you lose all benefits um, as a worker because you're technically mm. self-employed, uh, even though all the evidence suggests that you're a direct employee. You know, you're working uh, for one individual. Uh, you're working under their instruction. Uh, you're working possibly with the tools they gave you for the job. They're controlling what you earn. Mm. Um, all of the risk um, falls on you. The hours um, that you're employed for. The hours for. that you're employed mm. are very, mm. very clear. Mm. You might be working mm. a 40 hour a week, but of course you're self-employed. You can work um, however many uh, number of hours you wish. Uh, and um, some startling s- statistics are, are out there, uh, Michael, um, over the last few years, the phenomenon has grown, uh, particularly in construction. Um, there are about, the CSO believes, one quarter, 20, 25 to 26% of all construction workers in this economy who are um, self-employed with no employees. Mm. Okay, Now that is a startling, startling figure. And what happens there is because of the um, main driver really for bad employers to engage people on these kinds of arrangements, the main driver is uh, the reduction of their bottom line so they don't have to pay PRSI mm. the exchequer is losing out revenue is losing out and the Department of Social Protection is losing out in terms of foregone PRSI But that's, n- that's not necessarily a, a false status there's many self-employed people who have no employees and they're legitimately a- absolutely. self-employed Absolutely and, and yeah. that is about about 4% of all um, people across the economy uh, are genuinely self-employed uh, of their own volition uh, with no employees so you're talking about barristers mm. maybe chartered engineers architects um, a GP, for example, um, mm. and that's legitimate. And this legislation is oh, very clear. All sorts. Uh, I mean, people in building, painting, decorating, and uh, different houses, absolutely gardeners, legit- whatever. Yeah. A- a- absolutely legitimately. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the problem here is that we have no definition really in Irish mm. law about what constitutes somebody who's um, self-employed versus someone who's employed. So what we're doing is um, putting into legislation a very clear set of tests anchored in law um, to define. Uh, those differences. Mm. Um, this would be of great assistance to, for example, the scope section of the Department of Social Protection, where you go to with a complaint about the classification of your employment. Mm. Now, it often takes a long time to get a scope classification. Those those are scope determination. Uh, those determinations then are more often than not appealed to the Social Welfare Appeals Office and are overturned. Uh, so there are many, many gaps here in the law that are being exploited. The exchequer is losing probably about €300 million Euros a year. Um, now, the Department of Social Protection... Th- through that PRSI contribution, that PRSI. But the employer's contribution, but also in reduced amount of income tax income as well, tax, because exactly. uh, quite often the employee, if you like, uh, the bogus self-employed person, uh, believes it's in their interest to be self-employed. 
officially because they pay less tax. That's that's correct. And uh, there may be a short-term benefit uh, financially for somebody who's engaging in this type of behaviour. Yeah. But uh, the long-term picture is something entirely different. And I'll give you an example. I worked on a good few cases yeah. um, You know, at the peak of the um, last recession where construction obviously was particularly badly hit. Yeah. Uh, and there were maybe individuals who were quite happy to work in these kinds of arrangements because they were taking home a lot of money in oh, the back pocket yeah. every week. But when the construction uh, sector uh, collapsed, uh, back in the late noughties and early uh, 2010s, uh, when they go looking for uh, job seekers' assistance, it's not there for them because they're not entitled to it. Yeah. Because Suddenly they there's are no work and then there's no, no dole. And, and no yep. dole. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is this is the dilemma. Mm. So we want to tighten this up. And there's and no sick days, there's no holidays. No sick days, no holidays. And no redundancy payment either, no right, redundancy, if the job yeah. ends. Mm-hmm. And neither, you know, I worked very hard in legislation abroad in 2015 mm that introduced what's known as sectoral employment orders. There's a sectoral employment order covering about 200,000 construction workers where, you know, good, basic, decent Mm. statutory minimum rates of pay, sick pay schemes, pension schemes and so on that apply to employees, direct employees in the construction sector. But we're looking at a situation where about 26% of um, construction workers are self-employed with no employees. Many of them are falsely self-employed. They don't benefit from the coverage of that national collective agreement uh, because they are effectively considered to be self-employed, even though they're displaying all of the characteristics of a direct employee. So essentially what we're doing, um, Michael, is this. We are introducing uh, new definitions in law uh, to um, make it clearer what constitutes employment and self-employment. We are also as well um, introducing new measures to ensure that bad employers who are misclassifying and miscategorising the status of their employees uh, will be treated the same as tax cheats. I mean, if you're evading mm-hmm. or avoiding PRSI at the moment, you'll be slapped with a €3,000 fine and a threat of a prison sentence. I don't think there's anything on record to suggest that every, anybody has ever been imprisoned for evading or avoiding PRSI. Uh, it's rare as well that a €3,000 fine would be slapped on anyone. And finally, uh, we want to ensure that a worker who has a concern about their employment status can go directly to the WRC for determination rather than having to go through the scope section or the scope mm. section and scope employees and scope inspectors do very good work mm. uh, but uh, there isn't sufficient um, um, uh, personnel there uh, to carry out the kinds of inspections and the nature of inspections that this very complex area uh, requires. Now the but Minister... I imagine there's also great reluctance to come forward with complaints like this because it's a, a case of cutting your nose off despite your face and uh, whilst uh, you might mm-hmm. be seen to be right and that you were an employee, you lose the job and you're no longer an employee, let alone a bogus self-employed person. Well, that's right. And if you bring a complaint to um, uh, to the WRC or to um, the Department of Social Protection about uh, your employment status uh, and if, if you are directly employed, mm. uh, you have very clear protections in law. You can't be victimised. Uh, for, uh, for example, for joining a trade union, mm. if you're an employee, uh, to have your rights vindicated, uh, and are serious sanctions against an employer who would do that. But if you're self-employed, there are no protections whatsoever. And of course, this is a small country. Word gets around that a particular worker is particularly difficult, and there is a form of unofficial blacklisting mm. uh, that goes on, so somebody doesn't get onto the site. We're not just talking here either about construction workers, mm. Michael. Mm. We're talking about construction wor- uh, transport workers, we're mm. talking about people who work in IT, financial services, the media mm-hmm. uh, as well, and we're talking as well um, was a big about... Actually, yeah. Well, there was a clampdown um, back in 2017, and it seems that um, in Even response to... that, I think yeah, uh, around 2000, 
there was a big clampdown on uh, self-employed uh, people working in broadcasting and that uh, because uh, it was all bogus as I understood it. Anyway. That's right and we have actually what, what's known as intermediary employment relationships mm. that are set up by some very high profile broadcasters who mm. I won't name yep. um, who are effectively employees mm. of the organisation to do most of their work with well, there's uh, very but set themselves up as um, uh, in, as independent companies. contractors employed mm-hmm. by inter- intermediary yeah. mm. companies. Quite often national uh, broadcasters uh, are independent companies uh, well, and they only right. have one job working right. one for one company uh, and it's very difficult to understand and they are undoubtedly the same people uh, who will quite often talk uh, about social issues uh, and uh, equality and uh, the type of issues that we're talking about now. Which and highlight those issues on yeah, their programmes yeah. and campaign around them. Uh, mm-hmm. Well in fact um, the um, kind of uh, mechanisms that they deploy um, for their own employment by sort of shelf companies mm-hmm. uh, are questionable to say the least. Um, this week, actually, in response to the legislation, this is coming to the committee stage. We it was supported by um, the Shannon back in uh, early March of 2018 at second stage. This is going to committee stage now, so we're having a detailed examination of these proposals on Wednesday night. And in response, um, the minister, uh, Mr. Doherty, has said that um, the government will not be supporting this legislation; they will oppose it. But in response, and prompted by this legislation and the campaign that I've been running over the last couple of years to stamp out bogus self-employment, the minister has said as reported in the Irish Times yesterday and an RTE last night that she will be introducing her own proposals but um, they're interesting those proposals and they absolutely need to be examined very very closely and I'll work with anybody who really wants to stamp uh, out this uh, phenomenon of bogus self-employment because what it does as well Michael is it queers the pitch for good employers. Uh, You often have uh, two maybe major construction firms who are tendering for major projects um, and one might be you know, a good employer, a decent employer, employing their um, staff directly and subcontractors um, engaged in decent uh, arrangements, while another uh, might try to get a commercial advantage yeah. uh, by reducing their bottom line and engaging lots and lots of individuals on bogus self-employment arrangements. So um, bogus self-employment is bad for workers, it's bad for decent businesses, and it's bad for the exchequer. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for coming into us uh, this morning. Labour Party Senator Gerald Nash. Michael Reed on LMFM. The government is accused of stalling on climate change and trying to dilute targets on climate by people for profit. It's introducing a private member's bill to the Dáil this evening, which will look at petroleum and other minerals development and climate emergency measures, as they put it. Let's hear a little bit more about what's being proposed with people before profit TD for Dublin South Central. Breed Smith, good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us here on uh, the programme this morning. Uh, You'd be talking uh, about uh, banning licences being issued uh, for the exploration of underground fossil fuels. How are you doing? Yeah, this this bill has been introduced over a year ago um, and it has gone through the process of pre-legislative scrutiny um, but it has been stalled, deliberately stalled, by, shockingly, the chairperson of the Committee on Climate Action and the Minister for Climate Action, um, and uh, three senators, including um, Michael McDowell, um, and the two others whose names are just escaping me at the moment. I'll get them for you before the end of the programme if you need them. But what they are doing with the bill is that they're keeping it in a kind of a, a, a procedural lock so that it's like captured or kidnapped and it can't move forward. At this stage, it should be going forward to the committee for amendments and for, you know, discussion and and, and, and being prepared to go back to the dial and the channel for voting on. 
But it's been held uh, hostage and it's been deliberately held hostage by the Minister and the head of the committee because they've been lobbied hard by the oil industry uh, and the gas industry and they do not want my bill to proceed. And my bill does exactly what the tens of thousands of children went out on strike for. It demands that fossil fuels stay in the ground, that we don't explore for any more fossil fuels offshore. Um, And uh, it's just shocking that they're, on the one hand, this week, releasing the report on the action on climate change, bringing in a carbon tax, and then trying to block a bill that would actually do something radical and uh, clearly important to deal with climate change. And it it wouldn't be uh, the first uh, law of its kind. Uh, There are other examples around the world of this type of legislation. There are five other countries currently that have banned uh, exploration for gas and and oil at sea, and they've done it because of the um, CO2, the gas emissions, and the the crisis that we're facing on the planet. Um, Costa Rica, France, Belarus, uh, I'm sorry, Costa Rica, France, uh, Belize, New Zealand, and I think there's one other, but we would be either the fifth or the sixth. So it would be Ireland not being a laggard, but being a leader if we would just uh, let this pass. But I don't particularly expect that the minister will want it to pass, but what I do expect them to do is let democracy have its say and let the procedures that are set up by the Oireachtas to allow a private member's bill go through, to allow them flow and to stop deliberately blocking them. I think it's outrageous that Fianna Gael thinks they can deliberately block this measure. Um, would they do it in Norway? Um, would they ban the exploration of gas and oil in Norway? Mm. They may well do. I, well, I, I mean, uh, the oil discoveries uh, off uh, the Norwegian coast have uh, transformed that country, have they not? Uh, it's become a very wealthy country because of it. So has Saudi Arabia. So has Russia. Mm. Anyway. I mean, it's not... Um, it, 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 I'm not blaming Ireland for the, the total emissions of CO2 across the planet. Mm. But nature doesn't recognise borders and CO2 emissions don't look up to the sky and go, well, that's over Ireland and that's over Russia and that's over France. What, what's required is that all countries act uh, with a sense of urgency, as has been illustrated by the numerous reports that we've had recently from the IPCC to the United Nations to the Wildlife Trust, that we've got to act. We've got to act with a sense of urgency and Ireland in doing this would be giving a lead. Uh, we haven't discovered much in the way of oil, at least off the Irish coast, uh, despite uh, the theory for generations uh, that it is quite possibly an oil-rich part of uh, the world. Uh, so is there any point uh, to this legislation? Uh, I mean, surely it would only be important if oil was to be discovered. Well, there's oil and gas. And what fossil fuel, gas is a fossil fuel, and the bill would cover that as well. But in the process of the exploration for oil, there's a lot of damage done to marine life and to the ecology of the ocean. So what is the point in uh, letting off explosions of, of, of seismic nature that um, can destroy zooplankton, for example, which is the very basis of life in the marine world, mm. and that can eliminate dolphins and whales, and at the same time, uh, saying that we're going to be down about reducing mm. emissions uh, via the extraction of fossil fuels. I mean, the slogan that the movement is screaming at segments all over the world is keep it in the ground. And that's precisely what it means, keep it in the ground. We have enough um, access to gas and oil to keep us going for another 20, 30 years. Mm. And if by 20, 30 years we haven't radically reduced 
our carbon gas uh, emissions, um, we are in big trouble. And this is the point about the bill, is that it's trying to say we have to act with a sense of emergency and we have to act with, with uh, radical measures that we deal with this OK, I don't mean to be flippant, but perhaps the answer to your question as to what is uh, the point in uh, setting off explosions at, at the bottom of the sea and the damage that does uh, to the environment uh, and... Uh, the uh, living organisms uh, that are, are there is uh, the prospect of extreme wealth uh, and undoubtedly that's why these uh, operations are taking place uh, because I, I mean as I understand I don't remember but I, as I recall it's uh, something that would elude the Irish government from ever entering into that as a state we wouldn't have enough money to carry out this type of exploratory work uh, and it is multi-billion uh, rich accounts that fund these projects so that they will hopefully become a lot richer and uh, the idea is uh, that the people of this country would benefit as a result. Well, you, you, I mean, that's one argument and that's, if you want to benefit in the sort of uh, financial and immediate terms of saying that in the next 15 to 20 years if we find the level of oil and gas that they keep predicting is out there, we could be a very rich country. But actually, if you look at the way the oil industry is structured in this country, uh, very little, if any of the royalties don't come back and they get uh, loads and loads of tax breaks, just like Shell did and Mayo. So the Irish people themselves don't gain hugely for it. In fact, any of the resources that are found are sold back to the Irish people at market value. So we may as well be buying it from, um, you know, from, from the North Sea or from Scotland. Um, so... The argument doesn't hold up when you balance it against the risk that we are taking to the future of the planet. And to be honest with you, the future of the existence of mankind on the planet as well, because this is a really, really serious challenge we're facing. And we do have 12 years within which to change our ways, but we have less than 50 years within which to bring down the emissions in a very, very radical mm. way. But is there a question of security? Taking oil and, and gas out of the sea. We are never going to bring down the emissions. But is there a question of security of supply? Uh, I mean, uh, 100% of the oil that comes into this country comes uh, exactly that way into this country from elsewhere, but uh, just 34% of our gas is imported. The, yeah, sorry. What do you, I mean, uh, the, the question is a bit silly because there is no security in a planet that overheats by two degrees. No mm. security for anyone. So, like, you're balancing security of what against what, you know what I mean? Okay, okay. Uh, but the argument against that argument is that you change uh, people's habits uh, and the way uh, that uh, they use fuels, and that's the idea of uh, the carbon tax, uh, that you, that you penalise uh, people for using uh, fossil fuels and incentivise uh, the use of uh, more environmentally friendly fuels. Uh, but you're uh, opposed to an increase in the carbon tax. Science has settled a long time ago, probably 15 years ago, um, around before before Paris, in fact, probably around Kyoto. The science was settled on the understanding that we have to leave 80%, at least 80% of known fossil fuels in the ground, or we're not going to be able to tackle the earth overheating by 1.5 to 2 degrees. Now, that's the science, and we either accept mm. the science or we don't. And if we accept the science, then we have to say, how do we deal with this? And changing people's behaviour, saying to me, uh, you know, um, turn off your gas late at night when you come home after the door, you shouldn't have the gas on because you're burning too many carbons. Mm. Is it, 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 it is the solution. 
Um, and actually, I probably if I had a better insulated house, I'd a good insulated house, but if I had a better one, I probably wouldn't need to. Yeah, you probably would but need to if you had a different American president or if China and India had different attitudes for that matter. What, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, uh, I suppose the question is, uh, does it matter what a small country like Ireland does in terms of our carbon footprint? Well, I I quote a 15-year-old student from Sweden, Greta Thunberg, that it matters what everyone does. Okay. Even if you're a small country, it absolutely matters what we do. If we all take that attitude, then nobody will do anything. It is very unfortunate that we have one of the world's biggest economies being led by a climate denier. That is really a, a terrible tragedy, and I hope that will change. But that doesn't resolve us from trying to move to low-carbon emission economy and trying to uh, pass laws that will stop fossil fuels being taken out of our oceans. Okay, well, please thank uh, those young people for the common sense uh, that you've relayed to us uh, this morning, and thank you as well for joining us. Uh, Not on at the program. all. Right. That's uh, People Before Profit, T.D. Breedsmith. Michael Reed on LMFM. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents Garda are investigating locally and perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Garda Nessa Durkin of Drogheda Station joins us for the report this week. And we begin with that explosive device that we were hearing about earlier that was discovered in Rathmullen Park in Drogheda. Uh, yeah, good morning, Michael. Um, the Sunday night last uh, into Monday morning, there was an explosive device left at a house in Rathmullen Park in Drogheda. Um, now, the EOD, which is the Explosive Ordnance Disposal Unit, they're the army unit, were called for, um, up to Rathmullen on Monday morning. Um, now, they have confirmed since that it was a viable device. So if there is anyone around that may have seen anything suspicious um, in the Rathmullen estate on that Sunday night, Monday morning, um, could they contact Drogheda Garda Station? OK, we go to Navin next, where Gardy are investigating a, a robbery that occurred in the town. Yes, that's right. An incident occurred on the Winetown Road in Navin um, on the 20th of March, which was last Wednesday, around uh, around the lunchtime um, time of the day. A man was walking on the road um, and three men, three males came up behind him. Uh, one tried to grab his phone and another actually assaulted him, uh, punched him to the face and actually headbutted him as well. So we are appealing for anyone who may have witnessed this incident to contact Navin Garda Station. It is a busy enough road. Mm-hmm. So if anyone was on the road and may have seen something, there was somebody who came to his assistance. Um, but we don't know who he is and we the, the injured party doesn't know who he is either. So if anyone knows, if they could contact Navin Garda Station. All right. Uh, we go to Ashburn, uh, where some trailers have been stolen. Uh, I'm sure the owner is quite anxious uh, to have them returned. Yeah, um, two trailers stolen um, from a locked shed, actually, in Ashburn. Um, the same owner, uh, but last Tuesday night. Uh, one was actually a car transporter trailer, um, and the other one was an Eifer Williams trailer, which is just a make of trailer. Um, quite common, but... Um, sort of um, an individual type too. Uh, this was sometime during the night between the hours of 11pm and 8am on the Wednesday morning. So 11pm on the Tuesday night 
um, to 8am on the Wednesday morning. So if anyone saw maybe them being transported during the night or saw any sort of suspicious looking activity, maybe two cars travelling in in convoy or anything like that, could they contact Ashburn Garda Station, please, or any other Garda Station? All right. Uh, to Drogheda, uh, you're investigating uh, how some bank cards were stolen and where they might be. Yeah, um, very uh, simple theft, I'm afraid. But a bank card was stolen um, from a person last Saturday outside a supermarket after the person had used the bank card in the in the supermarket in Drogheda. Now, the thieves managed to um, observe the victim putting the pin in the machine in the shop and uh, they managed to distract them outside the shop, take the card, and then they withdrew the maximum amount of money from the account that day. Um, this is even before the card was even noticed that it was missing. So just remember for everyone to c- cover your hand when putting in the pin on the machine, um, just so nobody else can see it. Or, you know, if somebody's standing very close to you, try and block their view of it. Um, remember to keep your card secure in your bag or your wallet or whatever. And never, please, please, we're telling people, never keep your pin number with your card or actually in your bag. Um, that's the pin number in your bag either. All right, and we'll uh, conclude uh, with an ongoing story and uh, the complaint uh, that sheep are being worried and savaged by dogs. Uh, It's a complaint that's uh, run over several months and has seen to the destruction of many sheep. Yeah, um, I suppose really it's highlighting the importance of keeping dogs under control. There have been a number of farmers reporting um, sheep being killed overnight in relation to um, dogs or group packs of dogs coming in and attacking them. Um, And the sheep are actually being killed uh, by these dogs. So never assume that your pet is incapable of this, as unfortunately they all are in some shape or form. Please remember to keep your dogs under control and to keep them contained at night so that they do not ramble. Okay, Garda Nessa Durkin of Drogheda Garda Station. Thank you indeed. We'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in and around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. Now let's uh, go back uh, to some more of the calls and comments that have been coming to us uh, this morning. Maggie, you've uh, some more comments uh, that uh, you've uh, got on the phones there from people since you were last in. Yeah, Emma was in contact with us. Um, She's wondering what's happening in Ireland days at all with the bomb squad in Ratmullen yesterday and then the horrific videos that run line of Clare Hall in um, North County Dublin and she's wondering are we getting more and more violent as a nation surely something major needs to be done before the whole situation gets completely out of hand mm. Frightening. It was. It was, mm. it was frightening to see. And again, on the same subject, Anne called um, in to say another week, another shooting, another explosive device found in Drogheda. What's happening to the town? Um, how have we reached the state of affairs? It's like something out of the Wild West or love-hate. The streets aren't safe to walk on anymore. And she says she worries about her grandchildren so- socialising in the town now, something that she never thought she'd hear herself say about her hometown. Mm. OK. Yeah, and then moving on to Brexit mm. um, Tom called to say he agrees completely with the earlier callers that it's time for Theresa May to go she's tried her best and it simply wasn't good enough so she needs to cut her losses and get out Alright well I don't know if uh, everybody agrees it's time for Theresa May to go uh, but more than half of voters uh, think politicians want to stop Brexit whether they do or, or not is another day's work we heard earlier on in the programme how Michael Hesley says uh, that the whole thing should be called off and that the MPs should now 
vote to remain within the European Union. How much weight Heseltine's view will hold these days, God knows. Uh, But it does uh, appear to be the position uh, that these votes on which might be the best, worst option will take place. The indicative votes in the House of Commons uh, and those votes will take place tomorrow. What all of that means? Well, God knows. It is uh, possible that Mrs May will be forced to resign as a result. We'll actually take a look at some of uh, the coverage in uh, the papers in the UK in a moment. They're all saying that the MPs are in effect voting to take control and uh, that Mrs May will be forced uh, to uh, follow whichever route is the preferred route. Uh, But this is not Mrs May's position. Matt Hancock is uh, the health minister and he was asked earlier this morning if Mrs May is obliged to go along with what MPs consider to be the least worst option. But not if it is completely impractical or if there's two options options that are put forward that are incompatible. So you can entirely see why the Prime Minister can't pre-commit to uh, following any course of action uh, when that course of action voted on may well not be uh, deliverable. Well, she'd have and, to resign then, wouldn't she? Well, she would have, if, she cannot, if she knows that she does not have the support of the House of Commons, if the House of Commons puts to her this particular proposal, whatever the proposal happens to be, that has met the least opposition in Parliament, and they say to her, Prime Minister, this is what we, the Parliament, want to happen. She, if she says, well, I'm sorry, I don't think it'll work, then they say to her, in that case, Prime Minister... Good night. Well, I I simply don't see what changing Prime Minister... Because changing the Prime Minister doesn't solve anything. That isn't the point, is it, Well, it it kind of is, because I I understand the frustration that so many people feel in this process, and I feel it myself. I understand why so many colleagues are frustrated. I, You know, most people go into politics to, to solve practical problems and make people's lives better, and this fog of Brexit has descended on all the other subjects. You know, I, I simply disagree that the Prime Minister should be in advance committing to following a course of action when she doesn't know whether that is practically She's no deliverable. She's in the matter because Parliament uh, well, has taken control of the process. No, she does have a choice because she commands the confidence of the Commons. There was a confidence well, vote and she won it. There was a confidence <laughs> vote within the that, party. That, and as she they say, was it. then. An awful lot of water has flowed under this bridge in the last few, well, I was going to say few months, the last few hours, days. Yes, and what the frustration of so many of us feel is that the, ob- there is a clear way through this to deliver on Brexit. Matt Hancock speaking to the BBC's Nick Robinson. Clueless May loses control of Brexit deal. That's the verdict in the headline on the front of the Mirror today. A lot of uh, the papers uh, take the line that Daily Telegraph is taking MPs' vote to take control. Uh, the I paper says Commons takes control of Brexit, but it also says in yet another humiliation, Prime Minister loses vote on who controls parliamentary timetable. Three ministers join Tory rebels as government suffers heavier defeat than expected. May abandons plans to put her deal back before MPs today for a third meaningful vote and senior cabinet members admit general election 
could be the only way out of the impasse. MPC's control of Brexit is the Times headline. Commons seizes control from May with votes to explore Brexit options. The Financial Times, they've now stolen what's left of Brexit is the headline in the Daily Express, which says Remainer MPs win Cummins' vote and bid to thwart referendum result. Beleaguered May fights to keep control of Brexit, according to The Guardian. I like the headline on the front of uh, the Metro. Stuck in the muddle with EU and back me and sack me PM hints she'll go if Brexiteers support her deal according to The Sun while the Daily Mail says is Britain plunging into yet another election it may very well be some interesting headlines if ever it's a a good indication of how the public mood is I think uh, when we take a look at those papers Maggie Oh absolutely I thought I was going to lose you under a pile of newspaper there for a minute Michael but yeah some of those headlines are um, really interesting I have to say and I would agree with you I think the stuck in the muddle with the EU one has to be the (laughs) favourite one so top gold star for whoever came up with that one yeah All right. well uh, just one quick comment before we go Yeah I do and I'll finish up with this one actually because to be honest it was kind of sad talking to this lady on the phone she was ringing in relation to this the incidents in Drogheda yesterday and she was a bit upset on the phone saying that um, she was an elderly lady and she said that she wants to see the army patrolling the streets of Drogheda along with the Gardaí because that might help um, people to feel a bit safer in their own homes. It breaks her heart to see what's happening in the town over the last couple of years. She's always been so proud of where she comes from and has always sung the praises of Drogheda when she's been abroad and now our lovely town is making the headlines for all the wrong reasons. Mm. She's saying that people are afraid to come here and that really upsets her. All right, careful what you wish for the army on the streets of Drogheda yesterday. We leave it on that note and God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.